Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Let me just give you a little bit of the backstory as we come towards the end of this uh, series in the second half of the book of Colossians. You'll remember that there was a group of false teachers who come to Colossae and they were trying to tell the Colossian Christians that the way to be holy was to follow certain religious rules, ceremonies, mysteries. And so Paul writes to them saying, no, actually, in Christ is everything you need. He is sufficient. And therefore, you've got to be raised with Christ. You've got to be truly come back to life supernaturally by Jesus. And having done that, then you've got to put off the old clothes, as it were, of the old way of living, put on the new clothes, being like Christ, this new way of living. Do that in, as one body of the church together. And then, as we saw last week, this also impacts how we live at home and at work, for we're serving the same Lord Jesus Christ who has raised us up. Well, but that leaves one final question, and that is, how then, in a holy way, are we to relate to those who do not yet know Jesus, who are not yet raised with Christ? And that, of course, may be you here this morning. How are Christians meant to relate to those who are not yet Christians? It's a very pertinent question, especially at holidays, of course. How are families meant to relate together, friends over the holidays, Christians and non-Christians? And so we come to God's Word, Colossians chapter 4 and verses 2 to 6. Let's hear God's Word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word. Amen. Well, as I said, as I was setting up the context of this passage, this, I think, is actually particularly relevant. For over the holidays, um, families, friends get together. Some of them believe in Jesus. Some of them do not. How are you meant to relate together? So I hope you'll find this relevant. And there are three ways to do that from this really critically important Um, Final part to how to make the holidays holidays. Here they are. First, verse 2. Look down with me. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So the first way, Paul here is addressing how to relate to what he calls outsiders, those who are not yet Christians. And the first thing he wants to say is pray. Pray. For there needs to be a spiritual work of God, and for that we need to pray. The grand secret to all revival of faith is revival of prayer. The one revival, the one true revival which I have been a part of had prayer at its hidden engine. In one week we saw a hundred people at the school raised with Christ. And afterwards though I discovered that a small group of teachers had been praying every Saturday morning for ten years for that to take place. Paul here is saying pray steadfastly and they certainly prayed steadfastly. Here's another illustration. In 1857 a group of businessmen set up a simple prayer meeting in New York City to run from 12 noon for just one hour. At first only six people came. Soon though it was packed. Then they had to meet in different locations. 
Then it went around the country, thousands of business people praying that God would revive them. And it was this that God used, sovereignly used, to bring about what is known as the Second Great Awakening in America. Paul says we are to continue steadfastly in prayer. What does that mean, steadfastly? We don't use that word often these days, be steadfast. What does it mean? Well, the original word here means to be devoted to, to persist in, even to persist obstinately in. (laughs) You just keep on going. One of the great secrets to effective prayer is simply not to stop, not to give up. Jesus told the story of the widow who needed justice against her enemy. She went to an unjust judge. The unjust judge had no desire to give her justice, but the widow kept on asking and asking and asking, and eventually the judge gave her justice, even though he didn't want to, because it was the only way he could get her to leave him alone. And Jesus says, well, if that's what it's like with an unjust judge, and you have a heavenly Father who loves you, how much more then should you keep on praying and not give up? That is, as Paul puts it here, we should continue steadfastly in prayer. E.M. Bounds, in his classic book, Power Through Prayer, tells the story of one great Christian leader who wore the hardwood boards into grooves where his knees pressed so often and so long. Can you imagine that? Going to a Christian leader's home and noticing that by his study, by his desk, uh, he had hardwood floor, and actually you could see... Where he had prayed so often, there was a little, little indentations, little marks where he prayed on his knees. One biographer says of this man, it was to his ardent and persevering prayers must no doubt be ascribed in a great measure his distinguished and almost interrupted success. We need to be reminded of this because we do not see people praying in private by its very nature. But the secret to revival of faith is always revival of prayer. We must pray steadfastly. Now, perhaps you have a friend who is not yet a Christian, or maybe you have a a family member who's not yet a Christian, a relation. Or perhaps you, yourself, are not yet a Christian. Becoming a Christian is a spiritual event. Pray. Don't give up. Pray steadfastly. You say, well, how? Write a prayer list, make a calendar entry on your phone to schedule time for praying. Pray as you go through the day. I know someone who prayed steadfastly for his many brothers and sisters over a long time, and all but one of them came to faith in Christ. And it was, I think, through the prayers. Great Augustine, one of the greatest Christian leaders that the church has ever seen, was converted through the prayers, the faithful prayers, over many years of his mother, Monica. So let me put it like this. Pray, then pray, then pray some more. And do it being watchful, Paul says. Paul's again referring, I think, to Jesus teaching about prayer. So Jesus says we are to watch and pray. And therefore to watch means, uh, Jesus is saying in the context there, to be alert because he's going to come again. We should watch for his second coming. And what a good reminder for us this Advent. Advent is about not just the coming of baby Jesus for the first time, but the return of King Jesus. We are to watch and pray. We are to pray steadfastly being watchful for Jesus is coming back. And that means we're to be awake. 
were to be alert, not like those wedding guests who fell asleep waiting for the, uh, the, the, the bridegroom to turn up. No, we are to be awake, watching, for he will return, attentive, active, engaged. The prayerful somnolence of a monotone ritual prayer is not steadfastly praying, being watchful. I've always liked uh, D.L. Moody's comment that he said, some men's prayers should be cut short at either end and set on fire in the middle. But we are to be watchful. Jesus is coming back. We have urgent work to do, including the work of prayer. Wake up, watch, pray. He will come at an hour you do not expect. Be watchful, be steadfast. And Paul says, pray with thanksgiving. What an important word. How often we miss out on joy because we neglect recognizing all we have for which to be joyful. We do not give thanks. How often we sad when we could celebrate because we do not give thanks. How often are prayers burdened by grumbles when they're meant to soar to heaven with thanksgiving. Horizontal moaning prayer. Do you know what I mean? You go to a prayer meeting and everyone just moans. They think because they're praying it's spiritual. You know, I'm really, really, Lord, I'm so fed up. I feel very angry about this person over there. Or that, you know, and it's just sort of moaning prayer about each other. We had to pray with thanksgiving. Lord, I thank you so much for that person. He's made in the image of God. I thank you that, that, that you, Lord, have given me so much. I thank you for Jesus. I, I thank you for your wonderful grace in my life. We had to pray with thanksgiving. And therefore, horizontal litany of complaints becomes lifted up by a vertical Thanksgiving to God. How about this holidays making a time, even five minutes, to thank God for all he has done in your life? Just five minutes for all he has done in your life. And then with that Thanksgiving lifting you up, would you covenant to be steadfast in, persistent, pray for those who do not yet know Christ, watchful for the advent of Christ when he comes again? Well, here's the second way to be holy this holidays in relation to those who are not yet Christians in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, look down with me. He says, at the same time, pray also for us. That God may open to us a door for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So Paul's saying, not only are we to pray for those who do not yet know Christ, we are also to pray for those who preach Christ. Now, pastors today are sometimes wary of asking people to pray for them. For fear, it will come across as somewhat self-serving. Are there not many other people who need prayer more? But Paul had no such qualms about asking for prayer. Here and in many other places in the New Testament, he asked God's people directly to pray for him. He knew he needed the prayers of God's people. Even the Apostle Paul knew he needed that. God's people pray for God's pastors. There are many matters about which we must pray for, of course. But he says, at the same time, pray also for us. And if private prayer is the great secret to public success, then the prayers of the church for a pastor are the great secret to a pastor's effectiveness. 
Now, pastors in America are unlikely as yet to be thrown in prison for preaching the gospel like the Apostle Paul was. But don't misunderstand the pressures. The pressures that pastors are under these days is ever-increasing. They are called to only please one master in heaven, and yet their practical livelihood is in the hands of the opinion of the masses. Uh, No one will watch a few episodes of an ER emergency room TV show and then tell the surgeon how to do surgery, but there are many people who believe that having been in church, they know how to preach in church. Jonathan Edwards had enemies who had resisted the revival follow him to his missionary outposts and deliberately spread gossip and lies about him to his new employers to try to get him fired not just once but twice. And today, as I say, all this sort of tendency is amplified by the power of social media which inflicts on all public officials the unending potential for reputational ruin. We live in what Ed Stetzer has called the age of outrage, where we're constantly angry with our leaders and offended if they say anything of which we disapprove. And on top of this is the long-lasting but still gradual drip-feed devaluation of respect for the role of a pastor in our increasingly secular society. Pray also for us. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. The wounds of a faithful pastor are many as he gives his life to protect the flock, whether or not he is physically in prison. But note, note what it is that Paul wants them to pray for, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. What a man was Paul. Here he is in prison, yet his prayer is for the progress of the gospel. He wants the mystery of Christ, which is Paul's shorthand for the good news about Jesus, to have an open door for him to declare that good news. Paul asks them not to pray for the doors of his prison cell to be open, but for the doors of people's hearts to be open, for there to be opportunities for him to proclaim Christ. So this holidays then, I ask you to pray that God will grant an open door, that many people would be open to hear the gospel, that your heart would be open to hear that God loves you, that he sent his son to save you, that he calls you to a life of freedom and purpose and joy and, yes, holiness this holidays. That the people we're inviting to Christmas Eve tomorrow night will be open to attend and believe. That God will grant open doors of opportunity for the good news of Jesus that we preach to make progress everywhere. And so to that end, Paul asked them to pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. To make clear means to make manifest or visible what has been hidden, to expose something or make it plain. The it which Paul wants to make clear is this mystery of Christ, that mystery which is the good news that was revealed as God came as a baby in a manger, Christ died for our sins on the cross, rose again from the dead. This mystery, this good news, Paul wants him to pray that he would make 
clear, make manifest, visible, plain, expose or exposit. This is why at College Church we teach the Bible or exposit the Bible, not just from the pulpit, but from kindergarten to teenagers to keenagers. This is why at College Church the gospel or good news is at the center of everything we do. We are called to make clear or exposit the gospel from the Bible. The goal is not to give life coach lessons. The goal is to make plain the good news of Jesus. Now, sometimes the good news is clear, but hearts are shut. Other times, hearts are open, but the good news is confused. For there to be effective outreach to those who do not yet know Christ, we need both clear good news and open hearts. So would you, this holidays, make a resolution to pray for all the pastors at College Church that God would grant an open door for their ministries, whether small groups, adult communities, student ministries, pastoral care, music, any of them, that their ministries would make clear the good news of Christ. How about setting aside a moment this afternoon to pray for the Christmas Eve services tomorrow that God would grant an open door in many people's hearts to the gospel, and the gospel will be made clear. Well, the third and last way to be holy these holidays in relation to those who are not yet Christians, you can see in verses 5 and 6. Look down with me. Paul says this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So in this little section we're looking at this morning, Paul has already talked about prayer in general in terms of those who do not yet know Christ. Then prayer for pastors specifically whose role is to preach Christ. Now though he focuses on our daily lifestyle or walk of us all in relation to those who do not yet know Christ or those he calls outsiders, those who are outside the faith. And what he says is we are to walk in wisdom. Now, if you're reading through the whole book of Colossians, you would pick up this area of wisdom has a specific interpretation for Paul in the book of Colossians. Earlier in this letter, he has said that all the treasures of wisdom are in Jesus Christ. He's counteracting the false teacher's idea that there's wisdom in regulations, religious rules, mysteries, ceremonies. He's saying, no, you don't need any of that. All the wisdom you need, all the treasures of wisdom are in Jesus Christ. So when Paul says walk in wisdom towards outsiders, he's not meaning we should learn a rigid, religious, proselytizing formula He is saying we are to develop a revitalized relationship with Christ to follow Jesus' walk and how he walked towards those who did not yet follow him, Jesus' way of life in this regard. Jesus, of course, spent time with those he wished to reach. He was generous with his time. He sat down with them at meals and ate with them. He talked with them in conversation. At times he challenged them, but he knew them, 
He asked them questions. He told them stories. He did not treat everyone the same. It was the same message, but not the same people. Pharisees, he rebuked. Sinners were loved. Disciples were trained. The book of Proverbs says, he who, is, who, he who wins souls is wise. A wise Christian, therefore, does not quote super spiritual Bible verses at random around the holiday dinner table, hitting his non-Christian family members over the head with the Bible. She does not dump theological truth on our friends in a discussion thread online, burying them underneath an avalanche of spiritual jargon. Wise Christians are not on a legalistic hit-and-run job, guilt-tripping Twitter followers to leave people bleeding from religious guilt. A wise Christian in love listens carefully to the hurting without condemnation. And in the fear of God, speaks the truth in love to the misguided. It is wisdom to know not only what you should say, but how you should say it and when. A wise Christian knows they cannot convert someone by their own power. I cannot manipulate you or emotionally trick you to be raised with Christ. He must do it. It is a spiritual work. Would you ask that Christ would raise you up this morning? To be wise, Paul, Paul says, also requires us to make the best use of or redeem or buy back the time. That word redeem occurs only on four occasions in the New Testament. Twice in the book of Galatians, describing how Christ has redeemed us or brought us back from religious, legalistic slavery. And then in Ephesians and here in Colossians, talking about making the best use of time once we are redeemed, once we are Christians. Now, when we think of making the best use of time, we think of um, schedules and management. And, of course, there is a, there's a point to that. Management guru, uh, management legend Peter Drucker said, until we can manage time, we can manage nothing else. But Paul is more, meaning a little more than that. If you are redeemed by Christ, you can redeem or make the best use of your time now on an eternal time scale. Christian, you can give your life for something that lasts forever. Paul wants you to redeem the time, not just so that you can be more productive at work or have more time for leisure activities. No, he wants you to redeem your time so you can invest in that which will last forever, that is redeemed people. He wants you to redeem the time for eternity by being a part of bringing non-Christians to Christ, to redeem your time by telling others about Christ that they too might be redeemed. That way you will be investing your life in what lasts forever, namely redeemed people. So this holidays, would you maybe look at your calendar, review your to-do list, See how much your time is redeemed. That is, how much is used for investing in people that they too might be disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Would you pray for opportunities to tell people about Jesus and then make the most of those opportunities when they come? Would you redeem your time, even this afternoon, by sending out emails or text messages inviting people to come to our candlelight services on Christmas Eve? So we are to be wise, make the best use of our time in our daily walk, and then verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, over the holidays, there'll be many opportunities for speech, weren't there? Many opportunities where we're sitting around talking and having a conversation, uh, perhaps at the dinner table. There'll be many times to go online and talk on social media about whatever is happening in politics or in the world or whatever. There'll be many opportunities for speech. And Paul is saying our speech is to be gracious. Now that does not mean merely saying nice things. It means speaking in a way that reflects the grace of God. So, if someone is living in a way of which you do not approve... Not harshly condemning them, but remembering that you too need the grace of God. It means if someone does something wrong, remembering that you too are a wrongdoer who daily needs the grace of God. It means when you have the opportunity articulating the message of God's grace, the good news of Jesus. But not only is our speech therefore to be gracious, that is filled with the message of God's grace and reflecting the tone of God's grace, not only is our speech to be gracious, it is also to be what Paul calls seasoned with salt. Now, in the ancient world, salt had two purposes. We just think of it as having one purpose, but in the ancient world it had two purposes. There were no refrigerators then, of course, so salt was a, an important preservative to keep food edible longer, to stop it rotting. And salt was used to make food taste better. So to season your speech with salt preserves the good in society by promoting what is right and also arouses curiosity about Christ by, as it were, stimulating the mental taste buds. Sometimes it means finding a way to break the stereotypes. Maybe uh, you're sitting around the dinner table over the holidays and a family member says to you, says, you know, all those Christians, they are all so judgmental. Perhaps you could say, isn't it a little bit judgmental to say that all Christians are judgmental? Or it can mean dropping comments like salted peanuts to generate thirst or interest. Did you know there are about 2.2 billion Christians today? That's a third of the population of the world, by far the largest religion. Maybe it's worth taking a look at the claims of Christ. So with wisdom... Making the best use of the time, speech that is gracious and seasoned with salt, we will know how you ought to answer each person. For instance, if this holiday someone asks you a question you do not know the answer to, you could say, thanks, that's a good question, I'm not sure of the answer. Can I think about it and get back to you in a day or two? Then 
You could talk to a pastor and get back to that person with a satisfying answer. Or someone says to you, yes, of course I'm a Christian. Yes, I know the Bible says I should not do that, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want to and God will forgive. You could say something like, forgiveness has a condition. Repentance. Jesus says, he who loves me will obey my commandments. Or if someone says to you, I feel like I'm wasting my life and I don't know what to do. You could say something like, the good news is that Jesus came to redeem us so that we could redeem the time to make the most of our lives and do something that will have value forever. Why not give your life to Jesus? So today, we've had three ways to be holy this holidays in relation to those who are not yet Christians. First, pray. Second, pray for pastors and their ministries. Third, walk in wisdom towards those who do not yet know Christ. For the holidays are a time where many Christians are in close relationship with family members or friends who are not yet Christians. So it is important to know how to relate in a holy way. In conclusion then, let me give you three brief ways to put this into practice this holidays. The first I've already alluded to. Christmas is one of the best times of the year to invite those who are not yet Christians to church. Christmas Eve is one of the easiest invitations of the year. Would you invite two people to Christmas Eve tomorrow here at College Church? Second, would you pray specifically for God to open hearts to the message of the gospel this year at College Church. Take time today to ask God to work powerfully to his glory. Third, perhaps you are someone who does not yet know Christ. Would you ask God to raise you up. I hope you're encouraged to hear that we have no manipulation, no underhand techniques. We present the truth clearly, openly. Would you come to faith in Jesus this Christmas? Would you ask God to raise you up, to revive your faith? The good news is this, that Jesus came as a baby to give his life for you, to die on the cross for you, to be raised to new life, that you might live with him forever. And we remember at Advent his first coming. We also remember his second coming. And there is a moment in time now that you can redeem. He will come back at an hour and at a moment that you do not expect. It could be any moment. And you have this opportunity now to be redeemed. Would you cut through all the background, all the things that have confused you and upset you and simply this Christmas ask God to raise you up to give you the joy and peace that comes from knowing that you are his, that you have a purpose, that he loves you, that he wants you. And so then you would 
come and worship. That's the call of our last uh, carol this morning. If you find it in your worship folder. Angels from the realms of glory. Calling us to come and worship Christ, the newborn King. Let's stand together. Angels from the realms of glory. And as you stand, would you pray with me? Sinners wrung with true repentance, doomed for guilt to endless pains, justice now revokes the sentence, mercy calls you, break your chains, come and worship. Our Lord God, we do pray, we pray Lord for those who don't yet know you, that you would break their chains and raise them up. We pray, Lord, for the preaching of your word, the gospel, Lord, that there will be open doors, open hearts, and a clear message. Lord, we pray for our own daily lifestyle, particularly over the holidays, when we come across family and sometimes uh, we have opportunities to say something about you, and other times it can be hard to know what to say. We pray that you give us wisdom. And that our conversation would always be gracious, filled with the grace that you've given us, and reflecting that grace and speaking of that grace, and also seasoned with salt. Give us the right things to say at the right time. So we bow before you and come and worship in the name of Jesus. Amen.